morning. I'm excited to be here with you this morning as we open God's Word with one another. Uh, one, a few things I want to cover before we get started. One is if you're here today with us and you don't have a Bible, there are ESV paperback Bibles at the end of each row. I want to encourage you to grab one of those. The Scriptures will be on the screen. We also want to invite you to take one of those home with you. If you do not own a Bible that's in regular English that you can read and, and understand in, in kind of an easy, straightforward manner. So that would be our gift to you this morning. One of the things we mentioned in the announcement video was a time next week to meet uh, the Lonis family and hear about their ministry. One of the exciting things for me was to get to see them uh, this morning as they came in. Can you guys just stand up and wave and say hi to everybody? I want you guys to meet the Lonis family and welcome them to Tama Bible Church. Thank you guys so much for being here. Uh, we are excited that God has allowed us to get to partner with ministries around the world. They're busy uh, planting churches and ministering in France. And one of the things that, that is a delight for us as Christians is that our family is huge. And our family really runs the expanse of the globe. And that in God's grace to us, he's allowed us to get to see and partner with ministries around the world. And the Lonases have been faithfully serving God for years. And it's our joy to get to partner with them. Please come next week and hear about their ministry. Join as we pray for them and lift them up as God does a work through them. So uh, we're excited that they're here. Uh, and we're excited that we get to open the Word of God together this morning. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to First John as we dig into what it truly means for us to be family. We, we sang these songs this morning so beautifully about the heart of God as a father towards us. That's a common illustration or imagery that we see in first john we consistently have this phrase where the apostle is calling us children or little children and he refers to god as father this is actually a really interesting thing in the bible as you read it when you read through the old testament and you particularly read the prayers of the men and women in the old testament one of the things that you surprisingly won't find is them praying to god as father what you will find is them praying to God as Lord. Predominantly, you see that the word Adonai, some, sometimes it'll be all caps and it's, it's Yahweh. But, but you don't find in the Old Testament the normal thing we see in the New Testament, which is prayers going to God as Father. And so when, when Jesus' ministry is here and he begins to show us how we pray and he prays God as Father, he's actually doing something that's not entirely new, but is unique. See, in the Old Testament, they understood God to be father in some kind of collective way. God was the father of the people of Israel. But you don't find that intimacy and that, that tenderness in their approach to him. Not that God has changed, but that our understanding of who he was and his love for us has increased and grown as the Spirit of God has moved and shown us God's care for us. As Jesus has invited us into the family in a new and unique way through his death and resurrection. And so as we begin 1 John today, I want you to think about this. That when we talk about God as Father, this is something unique. This is something abnormal. Not only for, for 
the history of the Bible as you go from uh, the Old Testament to the New and you see the way Old Testament saints would approach the Lord in prayer and the way we're instructed to. But if you survey the landscape of, of, of the world's kind of major faiths, this idea that God loves us intimately as sons and daughters is unique to what Jesus has done for us. And so my prayer and hope is that as we go through what it means to be a family, truthfully, is, is that uh, after singing those songs, that, that, that I can just make it through this because I think this is powerful and we tend uh, to, to not think about the phrases we're saying. We, we tend to be like kids at, at Thanksgiving uh, when the feast is served up. You see, when I was growing up, there was always this huge feast at Thanksgiving. Uh, but, but what I did largely was go outside and play football in anticipation for this feast. And so the football games would be on. We'd be watching the Dallas Cowboys because uh, that's the only team that has been sanctified to watch on holidays. Um, and all God's people said, eh. and, and only half of God's people said, Amen. <laughs> But, but as a kid with a lot of energy, watching just a little bit of football meant that I would get pent up and then I would have to go kind of do or attempt to do what I had just seen Emmett Smith actually do. And that meant you got kicked out of the house. And so we'd go outside and play and then we'd get called in at some point and, and the meal was served. And as a kid, here's what you do at the Thanksgiving feast. You sit down and you just partake and enjoy it and you give no thought to what went into making that a reality. Like you didn't pay attention to the fact that, that for days mom had been baking. You didn't pay attention to the fact that for hours that, that people would be cleaning up afterwards. You just enjoyed the feast. And I, I feel that when we approach texts like what we're about to read, we have the tendency to be that kid at Thanksgiving who shows up, sits down, enjoys the meal, and doesn't think about the recipe for what we're enjoying. And so I want us to look in 1 John. We're going to start in chapter 2, verse 28, and then we're going to roll into chapter 3. The chapter breaks are not inspired by God. Those we put there to help us easily track through the Bible. So I don't think they got the best place to break it down. So we're going to start in verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous... You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It's the reason the world does not know us, is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be is not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, in those few verses, there are a few really loaded phrases that I want to talk about for a moment. And I want to just kind of tell you what they are. First, we, we get this phrase that we are little children, which is this affectionate, tender term to describe your kids. And so if you were in Spanish culture, we have uh, friends where, you know, dad is Carlos and the son is, is Carlitos. That, that's how you delineate between the two. And, and it's not just that he's smaller that you, that you call him Carlitos. It's this, this affectionate term that's attached to him that, that denotes a tenderness and a care. 
That's kind of what we have going on here. We're referred to as little children, not just children, but with a a tender and affectionate phrase ascribed to us. We also hear at the end of chapter 2 that we've been born of God. And what John is doing is he's kind of footnoting himself from the Gospel of John chapter 1 where he says, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to be be children of God, not born of the will of man or the will of flesh, but born of God. That God has made us alive in him and and that we are now his children. And then he's going to tell us that you're God's children. I mean, his children. Because of the great love that your father has for you. And it would be easy for us to read those verses and just go, yeah, that's right. God loves us. We, We know that. I mean, if you were raised in church, John 3.16 was probably drilled into your head from a small age, for God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that whoever believed in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And and that was just built in, and you took it for granted. The problem is that that many of us, we didn't ever stop to think about that. To say that God loves us. That we're His children. That we've been born of God and that He has a tender care for us is something that we miss. And so I want to take for a moment and see if we can kind of open the recipe book and find out what it took for God to lay that feast of His love on the table for us. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We begin to get a little insight into the grace of God towards us. The Apostle Paul begins it this way, he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But... God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to see this and I want you to feel for a moment what went into this feast that we're sitting down to enjoy is the reality that you and I, because of our sin, were rebelling and chasing after the things of this world. We, we were, because of that, in opposition to God and by our very nature, bent towards sin. And, and the Bible says children of wrath. Because of that, spiritually, we, we were dead. We were unable to move towards God in any way because we were dead and we were in opposition to Him. And the Bible says, but because of His great love for us, He was rich in mercy and He raised us up. We were dead and He made us alive. That's why the Bible says we were born of God. We didn't wake up one day and choose to turn from sin and follow God. We woke up one day and the Spirit of God made us alive when we were dead. He says He did that for us. And He poured out His love upon us because He is rich in mercy. Before we were under His wrath, now we are recipients of His grace. Before we were children of another father, and now we are God's children adopted completely and fully accepted. Before, we didn't know Him. And now we do. And God's done this for us out of His great love 
He has taken us as His own through the blood of His Son and by the work of His Spirit. And God has poured out His love on us. In Romans chapter 8, I encourage you to turn there. We begin to describe how it is that our hearts were turned towards God. Ephesians tells us that God's heart was turned towards us in this rich mercy. But, but how did we respond to that? And Romans chapter 8, verse 14, cues us in on how this works. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. I want you to to think about how this is working. Ephesians chapter 2 has told us we were dead in our sin and children of wrath and God poured out His mercy upon us. And Romans 8 says that we were were not chasing after God. In fact, the spirit of of this world doesn't pursue God, but in His goodness to us, His Spirit enabled us, drew us, and called us so that our hearts towards God would be changed and we would cry out to Him as Abba, Father. And this word Abba is indicating this tender cry of affection and care. It's not exact, but the nearest we can get is Daddy. And so I want you to understand what's going on here. He says the work of the Spirit of God in you has been to make you alive to God. And rather than being rebellious and seeing Him as a, as a tyrant who rules in such a way that we don't desire Him, our hearts have been transformed so that we look to Him and we run to Him as a child does to his father when he's injured. That's the change that's taken place. And so when we read the Bible, right, and it's telling us in 1 John that God has poured out His love on us, the love of a Father, and we've been born of God, and we're His children. There's a lot that goes into that. Because we weren't always His children. We don't deserve to be His children. We haven't earned His affection. He's freely given it in spite of our rebellious nature. So He loves us. But that feast that we celebrate, man, a lot went into that. And we'd be remiss if we didn't take a moment and step back and praise God for His care towards us. That we do not, by our nature, have any right to be called sons and daughters of God. But God has given that gift to us. And so when we begin to talk about what it means to truly be the family of God, we've got to begin at this point where we understand our abject poverty before God and His complete and total mercy pouring out the riches of His grace upon us. From there, we can begin to discuss what God's going to do in us. Because of the blood of Christ and the work of the Spirit, we're part of a new family with a new identity. We've talked about that over and over again. I want you to see back in 1 John, Chapter 3, how this plays out for us. In verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. I want you to see something exciting here. He's telling us that we are not what we used to be. We are God's children now. Before we were children of wrath. 
But now we are God's children. So you and I, we're not who we used to be. But at the same time, we're not who we're going to be either. Because what we were going to be hasn't yet been revealed because we haven't seen him fully. And so we exist in this state of transition where God is doing this work on us. We have a new identity. We have new desires, new passions. We have this changed disposition towards God where we view Him as a loving Father and we desire to please Him. But the work isn't finished. We're still works in progress because we haven't seen Him fully. And seeing Him rightly and clearly in His glory is what transforms us as we mirror that glory. We need to think of this. We ultimately will become like whatever it is we idealize. Whatever it is we value, whatever it is we esteem, we will begin over time to look more and more and more like it. That's why as parents, we're, we're so watchful about who our children look up to and who their role models are. Because we know that whatever it is they esteem or believe to be valuable or worthy of aspiration is the thing that over time they'll be kind of shaped to. And what the Bible is showing us is that Jesus in his glory and that the more we see him, the more clearly we see him, the more beautifully we see him, the more we are conformed to his image until the moment that he appears and the work is done completely. As we see him, our hearts are turned to desire to be like him, to rejoice in his glory. As God draws us nearer and nearer, he's changing us, but we're all in process. What we are is not what we used to be. But we are not yet what we're going to be. John then will tell us two ways that he's going to transform us, that being a part of this new family with this new father is going to change us if we are the children of God. And so I want to talk about those for a moment. And if you look in verses 4 through 8 in 1 John chapter 3, you'll see first that we're transformed morally. That our view of what is right and good in this world will begin to shift in significant ways. And so if you'll look in verse 4 with me, you'll see that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness, for sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who the children of God are and who the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now, I want to put this in context for you because I think it's it's very helpful section of Scripture. It's also very easily a confusing section of Scripture. Early on in 1 John, we had this tension that, that no one who's born of God keeps on sinning. And at the same time, no one who claims that they're not sinning is born of God. He says, if you, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth isn't in you. So what we've got to understand what John is saying here. And it's important to understand the phrase that he's using. No one who goes on practicing sin. Notice he doesn't say no one who sins. Because we've already established that even all of us, born of God, seeking Christ, we sin. But no one who's born of God goes on practicing sin. What you find here is a phrase that's very interesting that describes an ongoing 
active, intentional pursuit of sin. The Greek verb here for go on practicing is an active present verb that indicates an intentionality. This isn't passively stumbling into sin. Because look, you and I sin all the time in ways we're not aware of. Because the Spirit of God is at work in us, because, because we're twisted and bent towards sin, we, we sin in ways we don't know, we didn't realize, and then we have this moment where the Spirit of God shows it to us and we go, oh! He's not talking about that kind of sin that was unknowing and unintentional. This is an active pursuit of that which we know to be evil. He's not describing someone who's wrestling with temptation and sometimes falling and sometimes living in victory, but continuously fighting to pursue God. He's not describing that. He's describing an individual who would say, I'm a Christian and I know God says this is wrong, but I feel like I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. And I really don't care. That doesn't work. No one who continuously actively, repeatedly chases after sin, knowing it to be an affront to God, has any right to claim that they're children of God. This isn't works-based salvation. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But what the Bible is saying here is that if you've been brought into this new family, your disposition towards your father has changed. Not entirely, we're a work in progress, but in such a way that the disposition of your heart is to please him, not to put something in his face and go, look, I can do whatever I want to do. It's the issue that Paul addresses in Romans 6, where he says, what, should we just go on sinning so that grace may abound? He says, may it never be. He says, if that's your attitude, you don't understand the gospel. Because you haven't had this transformation of heart where you desire to please Him because He's your Father. So we're drawing a distinction between some idea of sinless perfection, saying, I've got to be perfect to get to heaven. And what we're saying is, are you pursuing Him? Do you see Him as a Father? Because if you go on actively, intentionally chasing after Him, you don't view Him as a Father, you view Him as a tyrannical king to be rebelled against. So what John is saying is, if if you're chasing after sin over and over again, and it's just brazen, and you have no guilt and no shame, you probably ought to ask yourself some really significant questions about whether or not you should even claim to be a Christian. And the reason John's bringing that up is because that's what's going on around them. That people in the church doing ridiculously sinful things that even the world would have looked at and judged because they had come to some strange viewpoint that that because the spirit is good and the flesh is inherently evil, you can do whatever you want in the flesh because it's just bad. And it wasn't biblical. It was kind of the early origins of Gnosticism, this idea that, that there were two distinct realms, spiritual and physical, and they had no overlap. And because of that, you do whatever you wanted. And John said, man, you, you act that way, you think that way, and you're not God's child. You can't just do whatever you want and say, God's going to forgive me for that. That's a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel. Because the gospel not only lays out the reality that God has forgiven us from our sin, but it lays out the reality that God has loved us and made us his children. 
And then not only has he forgiven us from our sin, he is setting us free from their power. And so we don't say oh, that you always perfectly win. You, you are going to willfully sin at times, even if you walk with Jesus. You're going to give in to temptation and you're going to, to stumble and fall, sometimes in, in harsh and miserable ways, but you're going to get up and you're going to seek him again. In this way, the idea of repentance for, for the believer is not a one-time moment that happens when you came to faith in Jesus, but rather it's an ongoing disposition towards God and a desire to turn towards Him. So we're transformed morally. Not perfectly, not yet. In progress, as we display a repentant heart. But we can't claim to walk with Jesus and chase after sin as if it had meant nothing. The second way he tells us that as a part of his family, we're transformed is in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. We're transformed relationally. At the end of verse 10, he says, all these people who are either sons of God or sons of the devil, he says, the one who does not love his brother is not of God. And then in verse 11 continues, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain who was evil. The evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before God. I want you to see this. He describes a moral transformation, and then he says it's not just that. One of the ways, I think, in conservative Christianity, is we've often misunderstood what God's will is in our lives, is we have defined it largely in terms of the things that we don't do. There was this old saying, uh, where I grew up, that you don't uh, smoke or chew or go with girls who do. It's kind of easy to not go with the girl who chews. I don't know that I've ever seen that. Um, It's easy for us to begin to think about our life with Christ purely in terms of, of the immoral things that we don't do because we know him. That's only half of the picture. So there's the things that we refrain from doing, but then there's these positive commands of how we are to live because we're part of this family and because we're to interact with one another as family. And this is beautiful to me because naturally and in the flesh, we're not family. We're not. In fact, some of us end up in in, in settings where we're learning to love people that we probably out in the world would have never hung out with. But in Christ, we have something that makes us one. And there's a commonality between one another that supersedes all of the things that would tear us apart. And so we learn to love each other as brothers because we have the same father. And that's how the whole brother thing works. 
We've been adopted into the family. We have a new father. And with that, we've been given this new family. And so our relationships change. And one of the reassuring signs of God's work in us is our love for each other. It's one of the things that God says in 1 John is a reminder that you belong to him, that you love one another. Now, he gives us some interesting language. He says that the one who hates his brother is a murderer. And what he's doing is he's using the language of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I say, if you hate your brother, it's the same as if you've done it. And what Jesus gets to is the heart of the matter. In the same way Jesus equates lust with adultery, they are different in form, but they're not different in desire. And so he says you have to have a heart towards one another to love and to serve. Because we have become a people born of God and we're a family. And families love one another. That's what we do. Not perfectly. I like to describe usually my failure to love people as somehow connected to their uh, difficulty to love. But the reality is some of us are hard to love. All of us are hard to love. And we all struggle to love well. But we're called to love one another in brotherly affection. And you notice that the example we're given is Jesus. So this is how we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And what we'll see here is that love does love moves. Love leads to action. And so the example of loving one another is is the example of Christ who gave up his very life for him. And one of the things I love is to look through the history of the church and to see how people have taken that into action. One of the things that amazes me if you study church history has been how the church has responded to difficulties and social ills throughout uh, their time, particularly in the first couple of centuries. When the church still endured persecution and hardship. One of the things you'll find is that in the second century, uh, throughout Europe, largely in Rome, what we think the first instance of the plague came through, and and people were dying left and right. And what would happen, honestly, if someone was sick in your family, you just just throw them out in the street and lock the door because you don't want to die too. So people would watch loved ones die on the street out of self-preservation, but not the church. The church would take them in. They'd care for them. And this is the powerful thing. When you read the writings of the early church fathers, they're going to say that people viewed this the same as they did martyrdom. They were dying to live out their faith. And and they believed death had ultimately no power on them because they'd just be raised to life again. And so out of the example of Jesus with the hope of the resurrection, they laid down everything. Another example that I think is worthy of note is in 1 Clement. He writes this letter to the church and he's encouraging them as they deal with different things. And one of the things that he describes, I want you to hear this. One of the differences in the Roman Empire and American history around one of the ugliest things that we've ever seen, the ownership of another human being. Right? Slavery has been common in world history uh, really until. I'd say until recently, but there's probably more slaves today in the world than ever in human history. Because human trafficking is rampant. It's just under the surface. But in the Roman world, slavery was a reality, but it was different. It wasn't based on ethnicity as it was in our history. And every slave had the opportunity at some point to be free. It was called the manumission of slaves. There was a set price. You could pay your master, reimburse him that fee, be set free. So I want you to hear what Clement addresses in this issue. He says, we know that many among us gave themselves up into bonds that they might deliver others. 
Many have given themselves up into slavery and having received their own price, have therewith fed others. So I want you to see the early church practicing this command to love as Jesus loved. They said, look, here's my brother and he's got this master that's harsh and cruel. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go sell myself into slavery and with the money I'm going to buy their freedom. Or, or they might see their brother starving and unable to feed his family and say, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to sell myself. I'm going to give myself to be the servant of someone with no rights of my own. And when I get the money, I'm going to go to the grocery store. I'm going to buy them dinner. Think about that. So, so when you hear that story and you see the standard of our love for one another is Jesus who died for us, and you see the early church just crazy enough to obey that. I want you to see what happened as they lived that way, as they nursed people with the pox and died because of it, as they sold themselves into slavery to buy other people's liberty or to keep them from starving. The church exploded. Millions of people came to faith. What's our testimony? What is it? What we describe here in both fronts, this moral transformation where we begin to see our sin as disgusting and our Father as loving, this relational transformation where we begin to love as Jesus loved, and in both issues, guys, this is not an issue of behavior. This is a matter of heart. This is not about writing down the right behaviors and, and by force of will getting it done. This is about our hearts being changed. And you'll see that in when he describes rejecting your brother in need. He says, if you close your heart to them. He doesn't say if you don't help them. He says, if your heart is closed to them. What we're describing is a new heart given to us by God as he's welcomed us into his family. And his love is breaking and softening and transforming us. What the Old Testament prophet described as taking that heart of stone and giving a heart of flesh. Get a new heart. A heart that loves the Father and desires to please Him. A heart that loves our brother and desires to see good for them. And this is important because, guys, when we view morality often in the West, we view it through very, very skewed eyes. I'll get nerdy for about two minutes with you. There was a guy named Immanuel Kant who was a very influential philosopher throughout the West. He described a view of ethics that's been very popular, very influential. And ultimately what he said, he said any action done in which you desire uh, pleasure from it is ultimately not moral or good. So, so it's selfish. It can't be good because it's selfish. And out, his argument was that altruism, doing something for the good of others, is the greatest good. And so if you took pleasure in it, you had a mixed motive, and it was less good. It wasn't truly virtuous. And so anything you might do that you take delight in, that can't be good. And here's where, where he just missed it. So if I love someone, And I were to go and to sell myself to be someone's servant. To buy them out of an abusive master's home. And I took delight in that. I took delight in their freedom. Kant and the guys who followed him would say, well, that's, that's second to if you didn't care about it. Really? If I'm just disimpassioned and I don't care, that's more virtuous than, than if I love seeing good for them. 
In many ways, we have detached because of his influence the idea of doing what is right and delighting in it. And we've pretended that if somehow we take joy in it and doing what is right, that it's less right. And I want to tell you that's the opposite of what is true. Is that when our hearts have been turned to love what is good, doing good is not some, some decision between doing what delights us and the right thing. The two become one. And that's the work of transformation that God is doing in us. That we're learning as a part of this new family to love. I want you to see the example of this in Jesus in Hebrews chapter 12. Remember, Jesus is our example of how to love. And in chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set for us. Now, I want you to see the example again. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It says that Jesus went to and endured the shame Pain and agony of the cross, not because it was just the right thing to do, but the joy set before him, the joy of honoring his father, the joy of your redemption because of his delighting in your salvation and bringing glory to his father. He endured the shame of the cross. That's the example we have in loving one another sacrificially, which will hurt. That's the whole part of sacrifice, but it will hurt in a way that our joy overrides the discomfort. And when we begin to do that, to live sacrificially, motivated by a love for God and one another, driven by joy, the testimony of the church, the testimony of our lives becomes louder and clearer as it resounds the good news of Jesus. Two scriptures I want you to look at quickly here. In John chapter 13, verse 34, and then we'll turn a few pages to John 17. In John 13, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another as I have loved you. Also are you to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples. If you have love for one another. Now we need to turn about two pages to the right. To John 17 verse 22. The glory that you have given me. I have given to them. That they may be one. Even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. So that the world may know that you have sent me. And love them even as you have loved me. So I want you to put these two together. He tells us in John 13. You have this new commandment that you love one another. And by your love of one another. You will prove to be my disciples. So the world will be able to look at us. If we love as Jesus loved. And they'll say those people follow Jesus. And in the same way, if we have this unity and the bond of peace with one another, the world will be able to look at us and know that the Father has sent the Son. I want you to think about Jesus' prayer for the church as we're communicating the reality that Jesus is who he said he was. He said the most powerful testimony is not some cool apologetic argument. It is your lives lived out sacrificially loving each other. Why in the world does someone sell themselves into slavery to buy someone else's freedom? Why in the world does someone sell themselves into slavery so they can feed a starving family? Why in the world does someone go out into the street where someone lay dying with a contagious infectious disease and pull them into their home and care for them? Why in the world does a doctor leave his practice in Atlanta, fly to Western Africa so that he can fight Ebola? Why does he do that? It ain't the paycheck. It's the love of God.
transforming his heart in such a way that he has no choice but to pour out his love upon others. So why do people in Houston, Texas, who are facing a rather uncertain economy, why do they give generously to people in need? Why? Why does someone whose time is already stretched thin get up early on a Sunday morning so they can come care for infants? You break this down into small bite-sized pieces and over time you communicate something significant that because of the love of Jesus that the Father has from us as a true family, we love. As we talk about this father we have, one of the things we wanted to show you is true stories of his faithfulness. Stories of God carrying us through. Because we're family, we should hear these things. And when families get together around a table, they share stories. And so we want you to hear the story today of Greg and Joy Ryan and God's faithfulness to them.